1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18. It's our text for this morning. Here's God's word for us today. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word, and I won't deny that passages like this one bring us complicated thoughts, and what we would ask you for, Father, we would ask you for is the ability this morning to please you, to honor you, to serve you, to learn from you. Give us grace with one another. Give us the presence of your spirit to understand. Give us application. Give us growth. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you've been uh, following along in our study of First Peter, you know a few things. You know the gospel is glorious and our salvation gives us great hope. You know that Christians are living in a world that is not our home. You know that hardships and persecutions and struggles are part of living our lives. And you know that as the church, God has made us into a people who are his, a people who are a nation of priests to God. We are a holy temple. We're a people for God's own possession who live to his glory. And the beautiful thing is, that doesn't matter where you came from. We're that people. Isn't that good news? It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your social class is. We are a people for God. We who were not a people are a people. Praise God for that. But you know, you know that life in the real world is hard. It's all well and good to talk about living as the elect. But what about life under a harsh government? Or what do we do when we have authorities over us who don't treat us fairly? Two weeks ago, we looked at a section where God called us as Christians to submit to the authority of the government that God has allowed to be over us. And we saw that 
we obey our leaders so long as our leaders don't command us to violate the higher authority of the Word of God. Well, this week we're going to follow that same theme, but this time looking at the Word of God regarding living under another kind of authority. If you're a note-taker, we still have note-takers, yes? Yes. Five points this morning, five, and we'll see what the Lord does with us, and we'll pray we get further along than we did in Sunday school. (laughs) Those of you who are here get that. Those of you who aren't, you you know what? If you miss Sunday school, you miss some fun. We we do well together, I believe. Uh, Our first point, and this is no applicational point per se, but point one is simply going to be for us a brief look at slavery. A brief look at slavery. That's what I would write down. Verse 18 begins... Servants, be subject to your masters. Y'all, there's no good way to enter into this discussion in the modern world without stopping and having a conversation about the issue of slavery. And there's no way that we'll unpack everything that there is to say about the Bible and this topic here, but we're going to give a moment so that we don't neglect it completely. The word doulos, which is the common biblical word for slave or bond slave, is not used here. But there's no doubt that the first century form of slavery is in view. The Greek word here for servant is hoikotai, a word that ties to the word for household, hoikos. And these servants, then, you would call them, these are domestic slaves. They were household slaves So Peter's dealing with people who worked into the household, maybe even were considered part of the family uh, property of the master. But there's no doubt that we're talking here in this passage about slaves and masters, just like we're talking about it in Ephesians 6 or Colossians 3 and 4. Now what's the difficult thing right away for modern folks when you see biblical commands regarding slaves and slavery? It's that you and I have a very difficult time not reading in the modern day understanding of slavery and taking that and reading it back into what was being talked about and regulated in the Old Testament or practiced in Rome in the New Testament. When we hear the word slave, we think of 19th century in the Americas, West Africa, Europe. We think of the slave trade, we think of the Civil War. We think of racism, we think of kidnapping, we think of human brutality. But what we see regulated in Scripture is not the same thing. In the 18th and 19th century in America and Europe, that's the 17 and 1800s, for those of you that those numbers confuse, in that era, slaves, human beings, were bought and sold as pieces of property. Sometimes West African tribes would go raid their neighbor tribes, kidnap people, and bring them to the shores to sell them to ships of slave traders. Sometimes slave traders, military groups, and others would decide that they would go themselves onto the African continent and kidnap people. Sometimes the slave traders would wait for a tribe to bring a neighboring tribe as captives. They would take them and then decide, we'll take you too, rather than paying you. It was a more convenient deal for them. And the slave traders would brutalize the slaves. They would carry them over the sea in the most inhumane of conditions. Many slaves would die in the journey. But many others survived to live in forced servitude. 
Families were ripped apart as men and women would be sold to different masters. Other slaves were forced to breed like animals so that they could provide their owners with more human property. It was awful. It was ugly. And it was inexcusable. I want you to keep three things in mind as you understand American and European slavery. One, American and European slavery was the result of kidnapping. Two, was perpetual. There was no end. There was no way out for the slave in this system. Three, it was excused based on a dehumanizing racism. Based on kidnap, it was from kidnapping, it was perpetual, and it was excused based on a dehumanizing racism. Because slave owners and slave traders decided that they would view their slaves not as human beings, but as some sort of subhuman species. They assumed that people with lighter colored skin were somehow of a superior race and therefore didn't have to treat darker skinned people with respect as human beings made in the image of God. And it was a grievous sin. But you guys also know that when atheists talk about Christianity, they they love to use the Bible's discussion of slavery as a weapon against Christianity. Have you guys ever heard that done before? Yeah. Well, when atheists do this, they refuse to see that there were some very clear differences in Scripture from the evils of modern slavery and the modern slave trade. For example, in the Old Testament, a Hebrew who became the slave of another Hebrew would be released from his slavery at the end of six years of service. It was not a perpetual, hopeless bondage in the Old Testament slavery. In Scripture, slavery was never based on a person's skin color. And it was never based on the assumption that anyone who was a slave was subhuman. Most of the Old Testament commands regarding slaves were commands that slaves not be mistreated. And in contrast with American slavery, the Bible was clear that to kidnap a man in order to sell him as a slave is a crime punishable by death. So, yeah, there was slavery in the Bible. It was even regulated in the Old Testament. But you became a slave in a variety of ways. A lot of people in the Old Testament sold themselves as slaves so they could pay off a debt. Or maybe they voluntarily chose after they were slaves to stay in a home because they were happy. There were people from neighboring nations. Yes, they might become slaves after their nations were defeated in a war. And you might say, well, that's, see, that, there it is. That's almost like kidnapping. No, here's the alternative. If my nation defeats your nation in a war, you either become slaves or we kill you all. That was the culture of the day. At that point, becoming a household slave who was protected and given rights looks better. But none of those slaveries, especially in the Old Testament that were regulated, none of them is a one-to-one parallel with the evils of the 19th century. Well, in the section we're studying today, the laws regarding Old Testament slavery in Israel, they're not in view anyway. Peter is here writing to Gentiles who were household slaves under the laws of the Roman Empire. 
There was an author I read that said that at minimum during the days of Jesus, one out of every two persons who lived in the Roman Empire had been slaves. I've I've seen numbers up to 80% that almost everybody at one point or another was a slave in the Roman Empire. In Rome, you might become a slave just because you want to avoid poverty. You You might become a slave so you could learn a trade. Owners of slaves in Rome often treated their slaves kindly. They treated them like they were part of the family, sometimes. Slaves could be household servants. Slaves could be workers in the fields. Slaves could be doctors or teachers. A very common slave position was to be the the tutor for the children of the household. Many masters would set their slaves free in their wills. But slaves in the Roman Empire generally had the opportunity to earn money for their work and then could eventually purchase their own freedom. And again, another article I read said that most slaves in the Roman Empire earned their freedom by age 30. In Rome, you might become a slave for a season so you could take a step up in society. I'm going to give up these several years in front of me so I can build up a nest egg and be free and then launch out with skills and good recommendations. Now, it's also true, no doubt, in the Roman Empire, slavery could be brutal, and it was from time to time. Not every slave had a fair master or a just master. And Paul was clear in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, hey, if you're a slave and can gain your freedom, do it. Now, we're going to move on here to see what Peter says about slaves and and, and, and how we live with that, and how they live with that in that era. But you need to remember that slavery in Scripture dif- differs widely from slavery from the 1800s in the Americas in significant ways. The slavery that we're talking about, that's regulated in the Bible, was not from kidnapping, was not generally perpetual, and did not dehumanize someone based on their skin color. In Scripture, slaves were never supposed to be treated as less than human. But in Rome, which is not the slavery that the Bible ever endorses in any form, in Rome, that didn't mean a slave might not have a hard life or an unfair life. Now, we also at this point want to ask the question, what is the nearest parallel for you and me today to what Peter was talking about in this section? Because at first glance, you might say, nothing is quite like Roman household slavery in our culture. That's true, right? I mean, nothing's quite like what we read about from that era. But there certainly are principles that apply to living as a Christian in our world, in the workplace in general. Now, no bosses in everyday American jobs have the kind of authority over your person as did a Roman master over his slave. But I think we would admit that many of us have worked in places that we didn't really feel like we could get out of and we had to submit to leaders, maybe even submitting to leaders who were difficult to serve, yes? Many people have been unfairly treated on the workplace. And there are a few jobs in our culture, by the way, that might match the picture even better. I was talking with a friend of mine about this, trying to look for what's the best parallel, because I hate just saying, oh, this is just like going to work, because it's true, but it's not. But we began to consider military service as more of a parallel to especially Hebrew culture slavery than you might think, because a soldier gives up a lot of rights and a lot of freedoms, don't they? 
They give up. They give up their rights. They give up their freedoms to enter into an armed service. Into armed services. While in the military, a, serv- a, 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 a soldier is under someone else's authority in a way that they have direct access to commanding their person in a way that that your job probably doesn't do to you. Uh, I mean, they're even judged by different laws. You you know. I mean, it's it's very different. And. Soldiers do that for a limited period of time, often learning a trade, often building up financial security, and when they leave, have benefits to set them up in the world that they're walking into. There's a lot of similarities. A lot of similarities. But for most of us, the best way for you to apply a text about slavery in the scriptures is probably going to be the call to live as a Christian in your workplace. Now, you have more freedoms than servants did in 1 Peter. You've, you've got a way out of your job if things get bad that were not available to Roman household slaves. But many of the principles can still carry over from one setting to another. Back in the first century, the Christians might have been asking, how in the world are we who are slaves, who, who are household slaves, how are we supposed to act? Is the church supposed to launch a social political campaign to end slavery in Rome? In the passage before this one, Peter told us to submit to the government. What's Peter going to say to Christians who are serving as slaves? And how do we learn from this? And how do we apply this, right? And we've got to be saying, how do we do this today? And that's where I want to take us now. After a brief look, We just had to lay that foundation. Let's get into the text. Point number two, serve respectfully. Serve respectfully. Look at verse 18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So Peter tells servants, household slaves in Asia Minor under the Roman Empire, Be subject to your masters. And this is a simple command to be under the authority of those who are over you. He says, be subject respectfully. And Peter says, do this no matter whether you've got a good master or a bad one. Now the call to be subject here, very, very similar to what we saw in the passage about the emperor or about the governor from verses 13 to 17 earlier. And recall that when we talked about this, when Peter said be subject to the emperor, he was speaking of whom? He was speaking of Nero. So Peter knew that submission to authority can be painful. But Peter also understood a few things. Peter knew that to submit to authority in general is something that honors God. And submitting to authority does not devalue a person in any way. Just because you're under authority does not make you of any lesser worth than anybody else. And submitting to authority actually makes you look like Jesus, Jesus himself, voluntarily submitted to authorities for God's plan. But you know what else Peter knew? Be practical here, friends. Peter knew that the church needed to grow and function in the Roman Empire. Well, if if the church is going to function and grow in the Roman Empire, the church better not be attempting to politically overthrow, undermine the government or take over in society. Peter was given the church here an idea that the role of the church is to serve the Lord 
and see the Lord change human hearts. And Peter knew that God would change the world. And Peter was never here telling the church to compromise their commitment to the Lord as the highest authority. Again, two weeks ago we said we obey every law so long as the law doesn't command us to disobey the law of God. Peter said be subject respectfully. Y'all know that can be really hard. You ever have a bad boss? Was it easy to be respectful? See, Christians who serve under an authority, we're supposed to treat our authority with respect whether we like them or not. So we don't demean those over us. We don't mock them. We don't lead the, the break room banter where we make fun of them. We don't try to undermine them. And Peter's clear, we're supposed to serve respectfully, again, whether they're good ones, whether they're bad ones. A slave in Rome might have had a nasty master that he could not get away from. But you know what? When you're in a bad situation and you have to stay, then the best thing for you to do is to work as best you can, doing the best you can, being as respectful as you can, so long as you're under the authority of a hard master. That makes sense, right? Again, in our culture, this would apply. But the beautiful thing, and we can praise God, we can thank God for this, we've got more freedoms, right? We don't have to let a boss force us to violate the word of God. We've, we've got legal protections that say we can quit a job if someone tries to make us do something that violates our conscience. For the most part, we pray that that continues in our nation. But so long as you're going to stay at your job, you submit to your authorities and you do so with respect so long as you're there. Keeping it simple, if you're on the job, do what your boss says and treat your boss with respect even if your boss is not a good boss. If your boss violates your rights as a worker, you've got every right to quit your job. And you've got every right to pursue proper recourse based on the legal channels available to you. If you work and you're part of a union, you can file a grievance. If you work and your company has an HR department, you can go talk to HR about what the boss is trying to do to you if that's available to you. That's fine. You can take legal action if your boss is violating the law. You're not at all called here, and hear this please, you are not called to submit to abuse. The law of the land we live in, which is higher than the authority of your employer, the law tells you that your employer does not have the right to subject you to physical abuse or sexual harassment in any way. So don't think that this passage of Scripture tells you to give up the rights you have as a citizen. That's not in the text anywhere here. But the point is, if you're staying at the job, or for a Roman slave, if you can't get out of the job, if you don't have the legal right to do so, whether your boss is nice or whether your boss is a jerk, submit and be respectful as an employee. Don't cause extra workplace conflict. Don't cheat your boss. Don't steal from your boss. Don't sabotage the work of the company. If a boss tries to make you submit to something you cannot biblically submit to, you, as a Christian, must refuse to obey your boss. 
But you know what? Even then, you can refuse to obey in a respectful way. Right? You can look at your boss. You can wag your finger and say, I'm not doing that. I'm a Christian. You're an idiot. (laughs) Or you can look at your boss and you can say, I want to be able to, to be under your authority. But what you've asked me to do violates the word of God and my highest commitment is to that. And so I can't submit to what you're asking me to do. There's a big difference there, isn't there? Now they may still hate you, but you submit respectfully and when you can't submit, you still stay respectful. Friends, Christians should be the best employees anybody can hire. You need to know that. You should be the best worker anybody could ever hire. But we're not required to let ourselves be abused if the law of the land is on our side to protect us from that abuse. Third point. Endure hardships to testify to God's grace. 18 through 20 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So now we've got 19 and 20 added to our mix here. And we're starting to see that the motivation for first century slaves to submit to his or her master is the glory of God. It's almost like the Bible keeps telling us that doing things for the glory of God is the reason we do everything we do. Because it is. Two times here, Peter tells us it's a gracious thing for a servant to endure suffering without rebellion. Now, this is a simple illustration, right? Masters in the empire could beat their slaves for doing wrong. Now, immediately we get all, you know, oh, that's horrible. But remember, that's not a surprise. If you lived in that culture, anybody in the household could get a beaten for doing something wrong. That was normal. There are days as a father, I think, hmm. Don't record that part. I changed my mind. Don't, don't put that on But isn't it true that part of that culture was if somebody outranks you and you wrong them, they can beat you? You can say that's not, you know, I don't want it to be that way. Okay, very good. I'm with you. I don't like that either. But that's that's what the situation was. That was the culture. Peter tells his readers here, if, if, if you do something wrong and get a beaten for it, you don't have anything to brag about. In today's world, if you do a lousy job and get fired, you can't claim that as religious persecution. There is no spiritual gain for you if you do wrong and face the consequences. Oh, Lord, I took seven beatings today. Of course, I did seven things wrong and earned them, but still, Lord. No. That's all Peter's talking about here. But listen, the God who loves us, the God who sees us. He has special grace for us when we suffer unjustly. When somebody would mistreat us, when we've done nothing to deserve it, God is there for us. 
And God gives us the grace we need to endure. He gives us the strength to carry on. He gives us the ability to find hope. He gives us the ability to find joy in His glory in our suffering. And one reason we can find hope and joy in unjust suffering is that when we suffer, anytime we suffer, as long as we're not suffering because we caused it, I suppose, we can glorify God in the process. Honestly, even, even if you caused it, you can glorify God in the process. How? When we suffer hardships, but when we are not broken by our hardships, we demonstrate to a watching world that the comforts of this life are not what we live for. We show people who see us suffer that we value something bigger than this life. Our God who has promised us eternal life, our eternity with God in glory, this is worth far more than any hardship that we may have to endure in the here and now. Every time you and I suffer, whether you're suffering at the workplace or whether you're suffering in the hospital, you have a choice to make. I have a choice to make. We can suffer in such a way that shows that we treasure this life and what it has to offer above everything. Or we can suffer to the glory of God. And it is a gracious thing, the word says, when in our deepest hardships we show the world that Jesus matters more than what we face. So endure hardships to testify to God's grace. Fourth point. Endure hardships to look like Jesus. Endure hardships to look like Jesus. Verse 21 says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So now Peter gives us a second reason to suffer to the glory of God. Peter says that suffering things that we don't deserve and handling that suffering well, and truthfully, even handling the suffering you cause on yourself, but handling it well and repentantly, handling suffering well, you know what? That makes you and me look like Jesus. Jesus suffered. His example is one we can follow to the glory of God. Think about the truth that Jesus never fought for his rights. He was maligned. He was mistreated. He was beaten. He was spat upon. Jesus went through a farcical set of trials. He was sentenced to death. And then he walked a hill called the skull. And Jesus did every bit of that Not because he enjoyed suffering. Jesus did it because he was focused on the plan of God that was far bigger than anybody's personal comfort. To the first century household slave, discomforts, mistreatments, man, they were possible. But what would have been the result? Think about this. What would have been the result for the early church if every Christian slave ran away refused to work, or demanded they get different treatment? What would have happened to the first century church? What do you think? 
Rome would have moved to try to crush the church. Now, who knows what the Lord would have done. But Rome would have tried to squash the movement. But Peter says, accept even unfair treatment from time to time. And when Christians chose to accept that unfair treatment, and when Christians chose to work respectfully, and when Christians glorified Jesus by following his example of faithful service, the church grew. Even in the households of the strong. Because remember, in Philippians, Paul talks about servants in Caesar's own household coming to faith. Now again, friends, I'm not saying that we should look for problems and try to find some extra suffering. Nor am I suggesting that you, that you ever allow yourself to be abused if you've got legal recourse. I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying. If we walk through hardships because your mind is set on a bigger goal, you look like Jesus. When we desire more that God be glorified than that we be comfortable, we look like Jesus. So we want to endure hardships to look like Jesus. Fifth point, last point. Still with me? All right. Recognize Christ as the suffering servant. 22 to 25 reads, He, that's Jesus, committed no sin. Well, that's worth underlining, huh? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know what's beautiful about the Word of God, guys? No matter how difficult, no matter how practical, no matter how impractical the commands we study seem to be, a true study of the Word of God never takes us far from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even here, Peter is highlighting the submission of Jesus. Even here, Peter says, look like Jesus as you submit to others respectfully. Peter then profoundly opens the word of God to us from Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant. And many scholars would tell you, this text right here is the place, the place in the New Testament where Isaiah's servant song is most clearly tied to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, there's other places where it's hinted at, for sure, but never as cleanly and as beautifully and as smoothly as right here in 1 Peter. Again, contextually, Peter's saying, let the sacrifice of Jesus remind you to submit to hardships when when there's no other way anyway for the greater plan and for the greater glory of God. But right here, Peter reminds us of things that you and I have to see as the glorious, beautiful, good news of the grace of God. What do we see here? What's cool here, Peter's highlighting Isaiah 53, but he doesn't go in the order of Isaiah's presentation. He doesn't go verse by verse to Isaiah 53. 
Instead, he gives us verses from Isaiah 53 in gospel order. So what's he start with? Jesus, God the Son, lived a perfectly sinless life. Verse 22, Peter points to the fact that Jesus never sinned. He never lied. There he's directing us to Isaiah 53, 9, if you want to know what that's tying to. And Jesus, as the Lamb of God, why did he never sin? I mean, he was perfect. And if he's going to be our sacrifice, Jesus had to be perfect in order to be the sinless Lamb of God who could be a worthy sacrifice to pay for our sins. Jesus lived a perfect life. Then verse 23, Jesus did not speak out against those who were mistreating him. We see that in Isaiah 53, verse 7. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Remember that? He did not open his mouth. Like a sheep before his shearers is silent. Well, Jesus... If Jesus had wanted to, you understand, he could have talked his way out of going to the cross, right? He had multiple opportunities to say, nope, that's not me, or nope, that's not right, and he could have, but he didn't. Why? Jesus' plan was to go to the cross and die for our sins and rescue a people for God's own possession. And when Jesus suffered, he didn't threaten folks. He didn't stand there getting beat and going, I'm going to get you back but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He lived a perfect life. He voluntarily walked to the cross and he always had an eternal view as he was on the cross. He said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He died trusting himself to God, not taking his own revenge because Jesus knew that God the Father is always going to do everything rightly. God the Father will justly judge every sin. Remember this, Christians, there is no single human sin that will ever go unpunished. You should amen that much stronger, by the way. You don't because it scares you. Every sin will either have been punished in Jesus on the cross or, we, or will be poured out on the sinner in hell. Every single human sin will be punished. Jesus knew there's no injustice that's not going to get taken care of. Verse 24 tells us, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the, on the tree. See Isaiah 53.4, Isaiah 53.12 for that. He is the sinless, perfect Son of God. He, hang, he was hanging on the cross. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, God the Father poured out on Jesus his perfect wrath, his perfect justice, his perfect fury for every single sin that God would ever forgive. Which, by the way, Christians, when you sin and then repent and turn to God for grace, one thing you can know is God's not sitting there still mad at you because he already took care of every ounce of anger he had for your sin and he poured it out on Jesus. And the sacrifice of Jesus, his death on our behalf, allows us to die to sin and live to righteousness. God, when you have Jesus, God counts it as if you already have died with Jesus. That's the penalty for your sin because he covers your debt in Christ. And Peter sees Isaiah 53, verse 5, containing the phrase, by his wounds we're healed. Because of his death on the cross, we are forgiven. As Jesus died for our sins, to pay for our sins, he brings to you and to me the healing grace of God. 
And then Peter finishes with Isaiah 53, verse 6, when he writes, For you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He reminds us that we are like straying sheep. We wander off toward destruction in our rebellion against God. But in Jesus Christ, we can come back to God and have him be the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. We turn away from death and we find life in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And all of that comes from Peter. And it's a beautiful, biblical, simple presentation of the gospel. What's God saying to you? Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross to be the sacrifice for every sin God's ever going to forgive. On the cross, Jesus took on himself the very judgment that you and I all deserve. In his death, in his resurrection, Jesus brings life to everyone who turns from their sin and entrusts their soul to him in faith. For every Christian... Your story, my story, our hope is bound up into what Peter just told us. We're sinners. We're hopeless if left to ourselves. But Jesus took our punishment so that we wouldn't have to. Even more, Jesus gives you and me before God his perfect record of perfectly right living. So when we turn from sin, when we trust in Jesus because God brought us to himself, then God welcomes us into his family He's not holding judgment over us because all the judgment we deserve has been carried out on Jesus. Instead, God cares for us like a shepherd, like an overseer, actually like a loving pastor. Those are the pastor words Peter's going to use in chapter 5. He's like a shepherd. He's like an overseer. God welcomes us completely because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Now listen. If you have not been forgiven by God in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to let this picture remind you, you must be forgiven. Jesus entrusted his soul to the God who will do what? Who judges justly. If you will not have the mercy of God in Jesus, you are demanding God punish you personally for all of your sins. Can I let you in on something? You can't survive that. But if you let go of thinking that you can run your life, if you'll turn to Jesus in submission and faith, God will count Jesus' death as yours. He'll reward you as if you live the perfection of Jesus. This is a grace we cherish. This is a mercy that saves us from hell. This is the gospel and you need it for eternity recognize Jesus as the suffering servant. In context, this passage reminds you and me to live as sufferers in a hard world. We submit respectfully to authorities over us. No, we don't accept abuse if we have a way out. But it means this, we, re- we work respectfully for our bosses and... We bear what we cannot be freed from. Does that make sense? I wasn't going to use this illustration, but I have no self-control. You ever read any of those turn-of-the-19th-century-era 
stories of people that like sailed on ships during like the Napoleonic Wars, the British Navy. Master and Commander. You ever see the Master and Commander movie? Okay. Um, If you boarded a ship, cabin boy, whatever, sailor of some sort, the captain of your ship was law. And you can't get out from under him once you're there. And he would absolutely beat you for crimes on your ship. Some captains were gentler, some captains were harsher. If you were on that ship, if you're in the middle of the ocean, you can't get off. I don't like the way I'm treated. I'm going to leave. Walk. (laughs) If you tried to lead a mutiny, you would die in the attempt, or even if you were successful, you'd be a criminal for the rest of your life. In a situation like that, the smartest thing to do would be to keep your head down, serve respectfully, and when you have the chance to leave the service of that captain, do so. That's pretty much what Peter's telling slaves. We submit respectfully to our bosses and bear what we cannot be freed from. We do this why? For the glory of God. We do this because suffering for right living shows the world that we value God more than comfort. And we do it because we look like Jesus when we do it. Because Jesus suffered though he never sinned. And we remember, we remember the gospel that Christ's sufferings brought to us. We're saved because Jesus didn't fight for his own rights. If you don't know Jesus, I urge you, come to Jesus and find mercy. If you do know Jesus, I urge you to obey him. I urge you to submit to Jesus as a good master. And I urge you to worship Jesus for the glorious grace of God. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, there's so much here. There's so many times when I get done with a sermon, Lord, that you know that my hope, my hope is I just didn't mess it up. I pray that you help us see that you're a good God, a good master, and we have a responsibility to honor you in our lives. I pray that you'd help us see that Your grace is sufficient for us when we are in situations we can't get out of, but we wish we could. God, I pray that you would let us us magnify you well. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us not just to take from this message a lesson on slaves and slavery, because that was just a tiny part. But let us take from this the gospel of Jesus Christ and our call to love you and glorify you in everything we do. Because if Jesus could suffer so much to save our souls, then we can make make it going through hard lives here. Help us do it, Lord. We ask in Christ's holy name.
Amen. Let's stand.